0: and welcome to the midlife athlete podcast i'm uh, your uh, host jason smith and uh, i'm with uh, my other co-host greg how are you very well good to see you mate and you um greg we've talked a lot i think all pretty much of our episodes so far have been about physical stuff the body yes um well, we're going to we're going to turn our attention to the mind the brain today
1: yeah <laughs> well actually don't, actually we, don't. We, we we had a philosopher on last week which we, have, we oh, haven't released true. the episode yet we had a philosopher on so there's a there's a bit of a mental stuff there but this is we're we're, we're digging into it we've got a psychiatrist now so that's going to be so which I never thought we'd have on in in fairness I never thought this well, would happen well. but here we are it's good
0: Yep. So, welcome, uh, Dr. Roberts, Dr. Callis Roberts. Um, it's it's it, thank you for coming on. And I think you're, if I get this right, you're a consultant psychiatrist, and you have a specialist interest around sort of brain health and dementia. Is
2: that right? Yes. Yeah. So, I've been working as a psychiatrist for twenty years or so, but I think probably in the last ten or fifteen years, I've been become particularly interested in cognitive health, um, both treating people with very significant cognitive problems like dementia, but also trying to keep people's brains relatively healthy um, so that they can, as best they can, sort of avoid those uh, really difficult conditions and things. But, yeah, certainly an area of, of real interest to me. And
0: um, you're coming from sunny Brisbane. Oh, it's, uh, I'm not sure yeah. if it's it
2: sunny there at the moment. No, actually it's not. It's completely <laughs> the opposite. We're in the middle of a La Nina event, so we've had 130 oh. millimetres of rain in the last 24 hours. Still raining outside. Uh, There's no end in sight. So it's rather like England, but just warm.
1: (laughs) It's warm, gosh. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Fantastic. Um, And you've you've written a book called, uh, I think it's Mind Your Brain, The Essential Australian Guide to to Dementia. Um, Mm. And and, and I came across you um, through an article you wrote for uh, Psyche magazine. And so we thought it'd be really good to have a chat with you uh, about sort of how – we can look at maintaining uh, a healthy brain and some of the lifestyle factors that that, that can help with that. Um, and so I guess really the, where, where do we,
1: where do we kick off? Um, for me, for me, I, I would say that, you know, obviously the podcast midlife athlete, um, you've got a growing, growing, a swelling number of, of certainly within the media of talking about dementia and how and and i think it's becoming more and more on people's horizons um and i think in your article um callas you, you said that you know it, it's now beca- i think it's become the biggest fear of people over a certain age is that is that yeah. right
2: yeah that that's quite right so sort of i guess midlife onwards or age of 50 and particularly as you reach mm-hmm. 60 it is the one of the things that people fear the most. And it's understandable. I mean, I think what we've managed to do over the last sort of half century or so is really improve our physical health greatly. You know, we're we're Mm. much more likely to survive sort of cardiovascular issues. And, you know, we can treat other sort of physical health problems quite well, but we haven't quite got round to a situation where we can, you know, cure dementia or cure these really sort of significant cognitive problems. So, there are lots of things we can do and we talk about that if you like mm. Um, mm. once the, uh, I guess, condition of dementia has set in. But um, it is a real concern to people because it is, you know, essentially an incurable disease. Mm. Um, and, I think in tandem with that, I mean, there is also some optimism now about things that you can do to mm. either prevent it occurring or at least sort of push out the onset of things like dementia. And those things have to start, well, sorry, not have to, they ideally should start many years before, you know, mm. we traditionally see dementia and we can kind of talk about why that might be. But certainly, I mean, it's a real... um yeah, it's something that a lot of people are very worried about, and we have an aging population globally. Um, so just by virtue of that, the incidence and or sort of the prevalence of dementia actually has um, is going up. You know, there's 50 million people in the world at the moment. The estimates are that's probably going to treble in the next sort of couple of dec- decades, or at least double. Um, and that's you know, UK, Australia, USA, some of the developing countries as well. So it's this sort of thing that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and and yeah, we're becoming a lot more aware of it. Uh, uh,
1: we had a, a guest um, before we were recording, I'm, I mentioned him, um, uh, economist, uh, Professor Andrew Scott, who, who wrote a book called Longevity, and uh, or a book on, on, on longevity. And he was saying that, that um, whilst the, the number of people who have got dementia is increasing, the actual chances of getting it are diminishing. Is that, is that sound about right?
2: There's some evidence of that, yeah. So if you look at a sort of cohort now compared to a cohort sort of 30 years or so ago, there's some suggestion that um, – and I think this was from a, the Framingham study, which is kind of a big study on vascular health and things like that, that showed that, um, yeah, the actual incidence of it occurring uh, now compared to sort of 20 or 30 years ago has actually decreased. And so that's, you know, that's a positive thing. I mean, that yeah, suggests yeah. that some things that we are doing can have an impact. So, yeah, that's an important mm-hmm. point to pick up.
0: Mm. And I suppose we should probably also um, kind of start with we talk about dementia, but as I understand, dementia is a sort of catch-all phrase for a sort of number of conditions within that. Yeah. Um, so, could you sort of just maybe just enlighten us a little bit about you know what what actually is dementia?
2: Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a big misconception. And actually, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, I've had a lot of people that would come and see me and they would just have just a misunderstanding about what, what we actually mean by it. But everybody assumes really that dementia and Alzheimer's are exactly the same thing. Whereas, in fact, Alzheimer's is just one of the pathological processes or conditions that sort of is a cause of dementia. So when somebody has dementia, it's really just a kind of a a clinical description of certain signs and symptoms. They have to have some cognitive problem at their core. So whether that's a problem with memory or it could actually be... uh, language function or changes in behavior or other problems. It doesn't have to be memory. That's the other uh, misunderstanding. But there has to be some cognitive problem and it has to be bad enough to impact upon day-to-day life. Those, I guess, are the two critical things. So, you know, as we age, we all have changes and um, decrements in our Kind of ability to, to think about certain things, but we can compensate and we can generally get through in the normal scheme of things. But when it starts to get to a point where we really can't function day to day, that's when we start becoming worried about um, dementia. Uh, the other thing I suppose to point out is, is, is that dementia is a, a sort of progressive condition, so it will get worse with time on the whole. And um it's not reversible, so there are actually lots of different causes of cognitive problems as you get older um, but they you know, they if they're reversible, then that's not not dementia. so you need to kind of exclude a whole bunch of other things as well but so we we often talk about dementia being this sort of umbrella term, and then below the umbrella are all the different causes, and we actually know there's you know maybe almost two hundred maybe even more. Causes of dementia, so lots and lots and lots, but there's sort of five or six that probably form um, or cause the most uh, cases of it. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common, which is probably why there's this sort of idea that they're exactly the same thing. So that accounts for two-thirds of dementia cases in sort of people Mm -hmm. that 65 or over. Then you have vascular dementia, so related to uh, blood supply and so on. Then you have alcohol-related dementia, which to me seems to be on the rise, and that might be interesting to talk about that a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have Lewy body dementia um, and sort of Parkinson's type dementia. And then you've got this thing called frontotemporal dementia, which affects the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe. So those are, the, I guess those are the, the big five, if you like, but there are lots of other causes as well. And the other thing that makes it slightly more complex is there's often um, coexistence of these different conditions. So mm. uh, we know vascular disease increases the risk of Alzheimer's disease, for instance, and Alzheimer's disease seems to increase the risk of vascular disease. So you often have, when you look at people's um, scans, you can see evidence of both of those things. And then equally Lewy body disease, uh, Lewy body dementia, which is caused by a different protein to the ones that we think are implicated in Alzheimer's disease. alpha um, often, often when we look at Biopsies of people's brains after they've um, died, we actually see evidence of people with Alzheimer's proteins and Lewy body proteins. So this is kind of a real mix of things. Particularly as you get older, so lots of different pathologies potentially converging on this clinical entity that is dementia.
0: And we um, we've talked before on previous shows about as we've talked about the physical stuff, and we've talked about how muscles kind of change as as, as we get older. What uh, what are sort of some of the sort of natural things? That happens to the brain then as, as 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 we get older, and I think you kind of alluded to them a little bit there, but I'll be just maybe flesh that out a little bit so that we know we all know as midlife athletes, we you know what we're potentially up against in the natural course of things.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think we could all talk about the lived experience of these cognitive changes, can't we? <laughs> uh, yes, because they are. I mean, I, I find it interesting. Sometimes I wonder whether they're just usual or whether they're normal. And then there is a bit of a distinction there because, like, I've certainly seen people in their, in their 90s who are as sharp as a tack, you know. So it seems to me it's not inevitable that you're going to have some really appreciable deterioration in cognition, but it does seem to be the um, the usual state of affairs, if you mm-hmm. like. So, the things that we kind of mostly see are uh, well probably the most prominent thing is a reduction in processing speed, so it just takes longer to kind of think things think things through to get the answers to things to kind of you know stuff just doesn't come as 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 easily and as quickly as it once was, and that has an impact on lots of different things you know obviously if you can't think quickly about things, then you may not be able to solve problems um, acutely and so on. Um, so, that sort of speed of processing is is one of the big things that deteriorates. Um, associated with that in some ways is this idea of a, a bit of executive change. So, when we talk about executive function, we're talking about mostly sort of front of the brain mediated um processes but things like mental flexibility so being able to kind of shift from one way of thinking about something to another again um, quickly uh, that's a particular problem Um, being able to sometimes inhibit impulses being able to plan and strategize and things all of those things there is probably a degree of expected decline as well and then we do expect some uh, deterioration in memory function to a mild degree as well and then that seems to occur in tandem with shrinkage of the hippocampus which is one of the kind of critical structures in the brain for memory encoding so we know as as people get older their hippocampus does shrink Uh, it shrinks more aggressively if you like in Alzheimer's disease and that's one of the typical kind of early findings but it can still happen with age as well so yeah, so those are the three things really. So speed of processing, uh, executive changes, which actually also include sort of attentional difficulties as well, and then uh, some deterioration of memory, but definitely not enough to the point where you would start having real problems day to day.
1: And what sort and of uh, what sort of age does that start to? Do we start to see that occurring?
2: Yeah, yeah, worryingly, quite early actually. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I think. People even talk about the um, deterioration to some degree probably from your 30s um, in some of these wow. kind of spheres. Um, so, again, you know, they're probably subtle and they might only be able to be picked up on in-depth neuropsychological testing. But when you do that, you do start seeing some, particularly with the speed of processing, I think you do start seeing some fairly early changes. Um, there's a th- sort of theoretically some compensation um, as we get older, like well, – we don't expect any deterioration for a start and things like really visuospatial skills, particularly, we don't expect any language changes. So if you see changes in that regard, then that's a, a bit of a concern. And then some of the difficulties that I alluded to with aging can be compensated to a degree by increased wisdom. And, you know, it sounds like a kind of fluffy concept, but really, I yeah. guess it's just pattern recognition and understanding what the important things are and just purely having had an experience that makes you be able to very quickly appreciate what you know what's relevant and what's not um so i always it's funny i always kind of think about people that work in teams in organizations that they should have different ages within that team because people bring different things to um to the team so you young people are quick to think quite creative and all the rest of it but just don't have that life experience whereas older people certainly have something they can kind of contributors as, as well you I, sometimes i make this kind of analogy with you know football team or soccer team as we call them over here mm. you know that they're often like the defenders you know the stalwarts are the kind of the older guys who they just hold hold everything steady and then the strikers are the young guys who are kind of quick to quick to act mm. and you know uh, but mm. perhaps a bit impulsive and, and don't you know sometimes see the whole picture so it's uh, yeah the strengths and weaknesses whatever age you are i think when it comes to the brain
1: mm.
0: And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm being very clumsy with the with the wording here, but as I understand the dementia piece, Greg, you may know a bit more about this, but it's 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 a form of proteins, and I think um amyloids, I think, is the is the term which kind of form plaques, almost a bit like cholesterol in the brain. Instead of it being in the heart, it's sort of in the brain. Is that is that is that sort of what happens uh, that these plaques form and essentially break break connections down i guess
2: yeah so that's and i guess one of the things there is at what point does that happen and mm. um is it enough to just uh, deal with those plaques so uh, and this is the big big thing but um essentially at alzheimer's disease so that com- commonest cause of dementia the typical things that we would see if we're um looking at somebody's brain after they passed away is, is amyloid like you mentioned which is forms in these kind of Uh, particular sort of plaque formations and there's something else called tau as well so amyloid sort of sits between the nerve cells and can eventually cause, cause damage in that way tau actually exists within the nerve cells and both of these proteins cause some of the damage that we see uh, resulting in the clinical manifestations of Alzheimer's disease. And it seems as though there's this kind of cascade where something happens that causes tau to, uh, sorry, cause amyloid to form these plaques, which then leads on to kind of problems with tau um, formation. And then that then leads to a lot of these other kind of problems in um, deterioration in brain function. And yes, yeah, so um, derangement of cell uh, function and cell death and um, degradation and that's what leads to sort of memory problems or all the rest of it. So that's Alzheimer's disease. And then as mentioned there, there can be other things of course that can damage the brain. So Lewy body and Parkinson's disease have this other protein called alpha synuclein. Um, so different proteins seem to kind of cause different forms of dementia but but amyloid and tau are the I guess the, the biggest sort of aspects of it. Um, I think one of the interesting things about amyloid though is that for the last 40 years in our kind of global research efforts to try and cure Alzheimer's, the focus has really been predominantly on trying to get rid of amyloid. And we have had very little success. Uh, We've really made not a great deal of headway. And so people are really starting now to question the relevance of the, what we call the amyloid hypothesis. And I think what we are appreciating is that maybe it's kind of, um, shutting the door after the, the horse has bolted with amyloids, you know, so the emphasis should probably be on trying to address the things that are causing the amyloid to accumulate in, uh, yeah. in the first place. So clearing the amyloid maybe is of limited utility. And, uh, there's a big, uh, the new drug that was, um, approved by the FDA in America this year, which that sole function is really to remove amyloid. And it's been a very controversial first drug that's kind of been released in that respect. And it's caused a lot of controversy because yes, it show, it has been shown to clear amyloid, but whether that is going to result in meaningful clinical improvements is, is in question. So th- this is the big thing. So coming back to the sort of idea of preventing dementia development mm. in the first place, to me, it's mm. a lot about addressing those issues that may um, precede the development of adventure by you know potentially decades including that build-up of amyloid but also other things
1: before, before we, you mentioned before we um, about, so, so, sorry just jace uh, before you um before we go on to that but in your work has there been a have you seen increased awareness or uh, the identification of when things are starting to change either through sort of, uh, clinical testings or questionnaires tests it, it, uh, as well as actual brain scans have you has there been a way of identifying the 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 start of the onset of of dementia
2: so uh, yes and no i mean i think i'm very much a clinician so day-to-day sort of clinical practice seeing patients and we perhaps don't have access to some of the tools that researchers do um hopefully we will more with time but um we, we're sort of in a fairly exciting period where actually you can now access what we call functional neuroimaging, which kind of looks at activity and so on in the brain. And there are certain scans around that you can get done that, um, bind radio ligands to things like amyloid and tau and actually show the presence of these proteins in the brain and there's even some tests that actually show um, levels in your blood so we are now theoretically in a position where we can identify very early Alzheimer's disease not dementia but Alzheimer's mm. disease mm. and then potentially kind of target that um, I'm not sure what the situation is in the UK but in Australia we don't generally have access to that day to day and so we rely on I guess the other scans which we've had around for for quite some time but so but,
1: but, sorry, but, but i suppose by the time they've come to you there's already the problems have already started i'm just thinking in terms of are there do you, do you envisage a point where you can start doing generalized screening um bef- to look at you know trying to pre- yeah, looking at preventing uh, or helping well, us I- to prevent
2: yeah, look, I, I'd love to. I think the way that the health system structured, particularly here, it's a bit more difficult to do that. You know, there's not so much um, emphasis on preventative kind of mm-hmm. measures. Um, I'm actually in the process of setting up a, a memory clinic here in Brisbane, which as well as trying to help people with dementia is is, is trying to do exactly what you're talking about, which is mm. finding people in their 40s and 50s, doing essentially brain health check, um, looking at all their kind of risk factors, and then just trying to change the trajectory of where their brain is, is heading. Um, and I think we do have Although we don't necessarily have access to those functional neuroimaging scans, there are other things that we can do which highlight the risk factors for copulative problems. So um, markers of inflammation, uh, metabolic screening, vascular changes, and all of those kind of things. So as part of my um Clinic, I really want to try and capture people you know years before dementia s- sets in, find those risk factors, and actually start to sort of try and address them mm. so that that's my hope, but I guess we mm. t- for me personally it's it's kind of just the start of, of things in yeah, that regard yeah yeah
0: and greg you um when we were chatting about this over whatsapp over the you know when we knew that uh, Carlos was going to come on, you sent me uh, an interesting thing about a test was like a five-minute test or something that you could do
1: yes um i, I gotta admit i haven't read it all <laughs> uh i'd I say I, I could say i forgot but <laughs> i'm not gonna say that. Uh, but um uh I, I can't remember what it was about now jace I, I, I haven't that's got- honestly i can't remember
2: <laughs> yeah no I, I think I, me, I have- just on that um on that discussion point i mean i, I think there are over the years there have been various things which have been sort of purported to be early signs so you can actually check people's smell for instance you know there's some suggestion if you get some olfactory dysfunction that might be a sign of um, early changes that might predispose to things like Alzheimer's Um, some people are kind of looking at the retina of people's eyes and looking for those microvascular changes that might predispose to vascular and Alzheimer's disease so there's kind of lots of these little things and then Um, There are some cognitive tests, quite short ones, which can flag problems. Um, I'm just not quite sure how um, sensitive uh, or specific they are as yet, but they're they're useful screening tools for for some people. I think certain things like um, looking at people's um, topographical skills, you know, like their orientation skills, which is one of the things that does seem to go off early in Alzheimer's disease, you can, I think, theoretically sort of pick some of those changes up pretty early on, um, even as there's a, a famous study called the nun study where, uh, you know, very clean living kind of individuals followed over many, many years. Um, some of them developed dementia, some of them didn't. And they could even look back at their, I think it was their handwriting when they were young, in retrospectively, and then actually determine whether they were more likely to develop, uh, or it's more their language rather than the handwriting, whether they're going to develop dementia or not. So there's kind of these... I guess interesting, but um, hard to know how to apply. Sort of early signs that, that you might see, but um, yeah. So yeah, mm-hmm. lots of different options, I suppose. But uh, I'm not sure we're at the point where we can kind of use these clinically a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned uh, alcohol dementia. Um, what 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 is alcohol dementia? I mean, presumably it's dementia caused by excessive alcohol intake,
2: I, I guess. It is, although uh, there's a lot of individual variation there. So I think uh, some people's brains are just more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol than than other people's. So we know alcohol has this kind of acute effect on our brain. I'm sure we probably all experience that, you know, and particularly sort of frontal lobe uh, dysfunction, so more impulsive, probably don't read social situations very well, not very good at planning, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, memory function obviously can go off as well, you know, classically at the extreme end of things, kind of alcoholic blackouts. But, you know, I think even before that people can have limited memory of, of times when they have been drinking. So we know that alcohol acutely affects um, the brain, but, uh, there is this potentially more permanent state of affairs if you drink excessive amounts of alcohol, you know, year in, year out. And I think that can occur on a spectrum where you, you may get cognitive problems, particularly executive, maybe memory problems that, that fall short of dementia. Uh, but if you continue to drink and you drink for long enough, you will get this cognitive syndrome that is dementia directly related to alcohol. And, and that might be, you know, related to inflammatory change because, we you know, alcohol is an inflammatory kind of substance and it might be due to a deficiency in kind of certain B vitamins or it might be kind of a direct sort of neurotoxic effect of alcohol on, on brain cells. But um, I've certainly seen, you know, a lot of cases of alcohol related um, dementia here. Um, on the other hand, I have a you know, friend, for instance, who's in his late 60s, who's been drinking like a fish for decades, He's sharp as a tack. So, you know, well, this individual variation is really there.
1: Carlos, is, is it, from what you were saying at the start, so the, the acute phase of that, uh, when we first have a drink or how we continue to drink in a, on a given day, and the effects you were describing. So effectively what, what you're saying is that that is a snapshot, uh, quite an intense snapshot of what dementia is. So the, so the executive function the frontal lobe function, all those things those changes you see memory loss, et cetera is a, yeah. is a condensed concentrated version of of dementia um
2: it, yeah it's a kind of a window into certain types yeah. of dementia so yeah. it is a it's okay. it's different it's a different presentation really to the uh alzheimer's disease where mm. it's classically. Memory loss first, and then mm. a few other things. You know, as as time goes on, um, it's more reminiscent actually of, of frontotemporal dementia because actually right. what you're, you're you're having problems with with alcohol is particularly the front part of the brain, in our executive centres. So it's a it's a snapshot, I suppose, of of what some types of uh, the frontal variant of frontotemporal dementia might look like um, later on in in life. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's the case that. Um, acute intoxication resembles Alzheimer's disease, really, but, okay. but certainly some forms of dementia. Okay. Uh,
0: so I guess we've and we've touched on it, and the essence of really, I think what 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 your book and and the article was really, you know, we can't we can't necessarily cure this. So prevention is better than the cure. So what are some of the things that we can we we should start doing? And it and if I read your kind of advice correctly. It's stuff that we should start like now, middle age, and not wait because it's it's too late. There is that is that
2: right? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, in fact, if you want to be extreme about it, we should be really thinking about this from from childhood. So, when wow. there was the Lancet commissioned um, report, which I, I think I mentioned in the the psyche doc, hmm. yeah, uh, hmm. that that article, which talks about how forty percent of cases of dementia are potentially reversible uh, by addressing modifiable risk factors and one one of the risk factors they talk about is education you know which is obviously occurs potentially from a very early age so we know Um, higher levels of education, higher levels of cognitive stimulation in general. So that could be like cognitively demanding careers, Um, even deferring retirement can actually be protective against dementia for possibly partly for that reason. So we should should really be starting as early as we can, you know, avoiding head injuries, which is, you know, a specific topic that's of interest. Uh, We should be doing all those things. But I think the so some of these things build cognitive reserves. So they don't necessarily change um, the, the structure of the brain so much as to allow you to cope with the damage that conditions that cause um, dementia may um, predispose you to. Uh, but then there's also the, I guess, the, the damage mitigation side of things. So trying to keep your brain Um, in the best shape it can be over the decades to prevent that sort of chronic issues. And really, we're talking there about things like addressing your vascular health. um, So that's a a big thing. Um, And also looking at keeping chronic inflammation in check. And I think chronic inflammation is increasingly being a focus of prevention of neurodegenerative diseases, plus plus a whole bunch of other chronic conditions as well. And we know that things like um, amyloid and tau- um, Particularly, you know, the amyloid can build up or has been shown to be on scans of people 20, 30 years before they develop dementia. So we know that the roots of dementia are are deep. Um, Likewise, the vascular changes, you know, we can start seeing problems with vascular disease from certainly from midlife, sometimes a little bit earlier. And so you really need to kind of just get on and address these these different things. So there's the, the kind of the damage mitigation side of things and there's the cognitive reserve side of things. Um, and then there's kind of you know using your brain um, and sort of training your body and and your brain as well. So there's lots of different kind of elements to that. I'm not sure where where you want to start with uh, the specifics.
0: Well, I I mean I was I mean I was struck by a couple actually that that, that really um, came out and, and and probably because of thinking of our audience um, who so I mean exercise. Is one, and, and I was struck with what you said earlier about um, the references to the, the shrinkage in the hippocampus. Because I've I've also read some scientific research, and, and I don't know if you can back this up, but but actually exercise seems to help preserve that hippocampus, if you like, for a little bit longer. I mean, I think probably there's still that natural decline, but the the curve, if you like, isn't quite as as, as, as uh, steep. So, I mean, yeah, exercise, I think would be, would be one to really on. I think sleep, which, Mm. which is a, seems to be, and I know Greg and I have, have have talked about that a few times and, um, I don't know. There also seems to be a, a a sort of almost a badge of honor sometimes in our society that, you know, Oh, I've only, I can, I can get by on three hours sleep, you know? Mm. Um, and, and then I guess diet, um, would would be another one mm. um yeah. so okay. so maybe if you could yeah pick out on some of those that that would be really helpful
2: yeah sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk about exercise first then and you know i i'm aware obviously i'm preaching to the converted a little bit here <laughs> but uh you know i think exercise in amongst all of the different interventions we have for brain health i really feel that exercise is probably one of the top ones if not the top one because it, it's so good in in so many different ways you know in terms of the, the indirect effects on mental health, the improvements in sleep that we were just talking about, sleep being a risk factor, um, self-esteem, you know, all of these kind of things, which which I think you do indirectly have an effect on the brain. But there are also some specific, there's a specific relationship between exercise and brain health. So part of it's the vascular side of things. You know, we obviously know that um, regular exercise improves the health of your vascular system, and that's really important for your brain, you know. It's good for your heart It's good for your brain. So that's that's important to kind of control your blood pressure, control your cholesterol levels and, um, you know, those kind of things. Um, but there's also a direct effect, which you're kind of alluding to, about impact on, on brain structures. So we, we've seen both animal and human studies that show that exercise has favorable effects on the brain. And one of the ways in which it kind of seems to do this is through this production of this molecule called brain derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, which is it's a bit of a trendy kind of molecule at the moment. But it's, a, it's I guess it's a, it's a neurotrophin, so it you know shifts the growth of, of nerve cells and things like that, and it's really very important for brain health, brain growth, and so on. And we also know that it, throughout the in the adult brain, contrary to what we used to believe, that we still have growth of nerve cells in certain areas probably throughout our lifestyle there's a little bit of controversy about that but i I think most people would would think that's the case including in the hippocampus so that memory center we were talking about um and possibly in sort of other areas of the brain as well so bdnf um improves the the growth of and the health of nerve cells particularly in in these areas that are sensitive to that throughout life and exercise through We're not not exactly sure how it works, but there's another hormone called irisin, um, which seems to upregulate the expression of BDNF and essentially means that uh, there's like this people refer to as miracle grow, you know, miracle grow for the brain. The production of that is increased when we exercise. And therefore, you know, any any form of exercise that kind of induces BDNF production is likely to be good for our brain. So some of this is about... um, Muscle contraction specifically, and and interestingly, in some elderly uh, patients, they have used uh, electrical stimulation of the muscles. They're not actually getting them to move them. They're just putting, you know pads, electrodes on their muscles. And, mm. getting, and and that seems to induce BDNF, uh, which <laughs> is a dangerous thing to discover because it just makes makes me think that a lot of people is going to go, I'll just stick some le- electricity yeah. in my legs and I'll, I'll be right. I don't have to do anything else. You miss the vascular um, advantages, of course. But so that electrical stimulation of the muscles seems to be uh, enough for some people to kind of um, have the upregulation of BDNF and then that helps their their, um, their brain cells. And, and you're right about the, this the hippocampus, which – Shrinks as we get older, there seems to be some amelioration of that shrinkage by exercising regularly. And I think that's been fairly um, clearly shown. Uh, there's some, I guess, interesting differences between all uh, the, the types of exercise. There's some sort of nuance around it. So mm. there's yeah. uh, aerobic exercise and there's resistance training and then there's high intensity um, exercise as well. And, and each of these things have potential advantages over the others and they all may serve kind of a different function um it's difficult to know i think which is the best you know whether if you only had to do aerobic or resistance training which one you would choose but my money would probably be on aerobic because i think that's you know you're still getting some muscle contraction you're still getting uh, and you're getting a lot of the vascular benefits which are so critical as well but they probably you know confer different benefits for for different reasons uh high intensity training i mean that's i think that's a really interesting topic and uh, again it's a sort of potentially slightly dangerous finding that you can exercise literally for like a minute or two minutes and that's equivalent at a high intensity and that's equivalent to chronic moderate uh, aerobic exercise it means people might not <laughs> do what they perhaps should do for other reasons but yeah. um, there's something about the the insult of high-intensity um, exercise on the body and the brain that is particularly um, advantageous. And, you know, this, I think there's still research being done in this space, but there's some suggestion that high-intensity exercise might confer greater benefits, for instance, than chronic aerobic exercise in some people, particularly in some executive kind of domains. So, it's a, it's a really sort of interesting thing. And... I think actually some of this is – some of the advantages of high-intensity exercise probably come about because the body doesn't really have a proper chance to kind of chronically adapt to it. You know, whenever you go from, you know, doing nothing to suddenly doing something that pushes your heart rate up and really challenges your vascular system, your body's never ready for it. Whereas if you're doing chronic aerobic exercise, you know, running, cycling – rowing, whatever, then your body does kind of adapt. And um, the the body is a kind of efficient slash lazy system, you know, like it it conserves energy, it adapts and so on. And I think that adaptation is good from an energy preservation perspective, but I don't think it's necessarily good from a kind of uh, maintaining function perspective. So if you um, adapt very easily to that kind of chronic aerobic exercise, then you're not getting the same challenge to your body and you're not getting the same um, adaptive responses that you might otherwise get. So I suspect that's part of the reason HIT is particularly helpful.
0: And I, I was reading a paper just this afternoon, actually, when I was um, just putting some notes together for this. That, and maybe it's related to the HIT thing, but it was, they were talking about hypoxia as, as also potentially being of some benefit to, to, to the brain, um, mm. which I, I found quite interesting
2: yeah and i don't know too much about that but i think it's a probably a similar thing so what you're mm. doing is you're inducing so this is kind of um yeah hormetic yeah, stressors, yeah. yeah so so low grade um, physiologically insulting stimuli um can be helpful for the body to adapt so hypoxia might then lead to uh, a helpful change perhaps mitochondrial changes and so on that then are, are favorable for our metabolism and, and physiology so it kind of makes sense to me you know the, the body if it wasn't in a hypoxic situation it doesn't really need to do anything you know it just cruises along mm. stick in a low oxygen environment and then it has to actually work to to do the same things and that that challenge is helpful
1: mm. Mm. well i know that um, when we were speaking to phil cavell who's um he he wrote a book recently on called the midlife cyclist and he was we were talking about um inflammation in a general sense in terms of it is a bit of a, a bit of a, a go-to word now with certainly within me- the media about you know inflammation and it can be reduced by antioxidants or whatever it might be and the, how inflammation or chronic inflammation is is is, is present in a lot of uh, of uh, medical conditions um but he was saying that, that how exercise can be and he talked about it from an aerobic Sort of, uh, sort of endurance cycling perspective but i think it's all exercise um seems to have this sort of as, as you say like an insult uh to, to the body and the body has to react to it and and it's that sort of game from a, a, that development of of the inflammation at an acute level because of the exercise or inflammation uh, induced by the exercise and then it, the, the body's got to deal with it and it flushes it away and it has yeah. to clear it and it's that yeah. active process of of sweeping up all, all the, the the byproducts that's the positive part of it.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a very good way of, of looking at it. Actually, so we we do know that exercise acutely is a sort of pro-inflammatory process, but kind of mm. in the longer term, it, it has mm. this sort of more helpful um, mm. anti-inflammatory kind of effect. So I'm I'm sure that's that's right. Um, so. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think exercise is, is, is a huge thing. Um, you know, you would I'm sure be familiar with the kind of the general guidelines mm-hmm. about how much mm-hmm. exercise we should be mm-hmm. doing. Um, we don't really have a great deal of guidelines, for v- of cognitive health specifically in, in Australia here, one of the unis has developed a, uh, some guidelines for MCI, which is this sort of gray zone cognitive impairment between normal aging and, and dementia. So we're starting to get there, but we generally, for, your, for the sake of your brain, we basically kind of say you should be doing what you're doing for your health in general. Mm.
0: Mm. And uh, and sleep was a was a topic of conversation that Greg and I had, and and I, and I think Greg, you might have read something that sleep acts as a sort of again a bit of a clearing system through the course of the night, and yeah, and it's um, important to get a decent night's sleep because you otherwise you don't get that full effect of the of the clearing system.
2: Mm. Yeah, and, and look, that's that's fascinating, and and I, um, you know, I, I don't sleep well, haven't slept well for years, and so it's one of these things I'm kind of particularly interested in. Uh, interestingly, my wife says I do, but anyway, that's a, <laughs> a, a another topic. I think we how do, how does she a, know? Is she awake as well? <laughs> no, she's she's deeply asleep, which is my point. But anyway, that's a, a long term discussion. Uh, we, we do sometimes, you know. W- we're not the best judges of our own sleep patterns sometimes mm. you can get the single paradoxical insomnia where we you know, we think we're not sleeping but we are but um but but sleep in general i mean it, it's critical and, and if you just think about it from the, i guess an evolutionary point of view this this idea which i'm sure you've heard of is why on earth would we make ourselves vo- so vulnerable for a third of our lives unless it's some really um, important physiological kind of function yeah. and um we know that sleep it, it, it's still a mystery, but I think we're now understanding more about it. So there's, when we're talking about brain health, there is the the issue that you're, you're just mentioning there that I'll, I'll talk about in a second. Um, there's also the kind of the general idea of consolidating memories, which seems to be something that happens when we sleep. And traditionally, that was thought to occur when we were just in REM sleep, you know, rapid eye movement sleep when we dream. I think we're now getting a, a bit of a sort of broader idea where we think that even in non-REM sleep. Um, there's some uh, memory consolidation that, that takes place with you know, sleep spindles and all the rest of it. So sleep consolidates memory, improves, um, I guess, learning and so on. And, and we can even see in the acute phase that if you learn something and then you have a short sleep, and then you're asked to recall it be- uh, later, you're going to do better than if you didn't sleep. So there is this actual process of, of sleep that kind of helps things. And this is a conversation I have with my kids who are notoriously uh, night owls. Um, and I say to them, look, if you get an extra hour's sleep, it's basically the equivalent of 2 hours study. You know, that's that's the, the learning <laughs> benefits that it doesn't work. But, um <laughs> But that's you know so there's a real there's a value in sleep in, in consolidating memory uh, which we I think we're still sort of trying to unravel. Uh, then there's this issue of the clearance of, of proteins that we're talking about. So this can include amyloid and tau, and we know that if you sleep deprived people their amyloid and tau levels actually increase after even just one night of, of poor sleep. Um, but it also includes probably other. Pro-inflammatory molecules that otherwise would cause neuroinflammation and then potentially lead to problems such as dementia later down the track. And in the last ten years, we've discovered, uh, or somebody in America, I think, discovered uh, this system called the glymphatic system, which is probably what underpins this brainwashing effect. And these are these channels that sit around the, the veins and the arteries um, in the brain, rather like the glymphatics, but uh, sorry, the, the lymphatics, but they're called glymphatics over the G because it's related to glial cells which are uh, one of the other cells in the brain Uh, but what seems to happen when we sleep is with the the pulsatility of the blood vessels there's this sort of pressure effect which then pushes the fluid out of these glymphatic channels through the brain parenchyma the brain tissue and then into the channels on the other side so this is kind of pressure gradient and as it sort of flushes through the brain and are rather like i guess a, a flood water is kind of crossing a plane it kind of takes all the debris with it and then empties it out into the, the channels on the other side and so sleep particularly deep sleep um which seems to sort of occur more towards the beginning of the night and um, it seems to be really important that's when the glymphatics are particularly active probably active all the time you know when we're awake as well but there's something about deep sleep i think that um is particularly helpful and you deprive people of deep sleep. I just think it's, you know, chronically, I think it's a potentially a real problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've read some um, study actually of some, I mean, you'd never get away with it now, but some, some lady in Russia back in the uh, late 1800s had did some experiment with dogs and um, she took a number of dogs and decided not to feed them. And then a number of dogs where she deprived them of sleep. I don't, it didn't go into the detail of how she managed to do this, um, but the, the the dogs that were deprived of sleep died; all mm. of them died before the ones that were deprived of food, mm. which mm. is is quite telling.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that the, the ethics is questionable, isn't it? Yes, certainly couldn't do that now. Um, they, they've shown similar things, I think, with with rats. Um, you know, again, some years ago, that yeah, if, if you sleep deprived um, animals for not very long actually i think you know i think it's kind of a matter of weeks or you know even perhaps days in some cases they they will they will die um the there is some controversy as to whether if you sleep deprive a human for long enough whether it will achieve the same thing but clearly there are ethical issues with that study so uh, yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah we don't want to go down that road no. and and the other area that i i was quite struck with and and again greg and i have sort of mentioned this on previous episodes is is diet and the, and the, and the interrelationship with the gut microbiome mm. and how that sort of influences um the brain which and, and I, I think again I I've, I've read that the, the number of neurons in the gut are, it's just an astonishing number um you know when you sort of compare the number in the brain it's it's quite quite amazing so could you just talk a little bit about that
2: yeah sure so again I think this is another an area that's really evolving as a sort of an area of of research that the microbiome particularly Um, I should probably preface this by saying that um, we need to be aware of the limitations of of the research so in the article I I wrote I talk Mm -hmm. about the Mediterranean diet and this thing called the the mind diet which is a sort of variant that focuses on, on vascular health in particular as having the most evidence for brain health preservation and dementia prevention and so on um but most of the research that's done on diets over the longer term is is observational data so it's not randomized controlled trials and things and so we you know these aren't um iron cast findings i suppose um and there's it's such a controversial area you know like i've um spoken to or, or had contact with a number of people since the book that are you know keto addicts and um you know or carnivore you know diet mm. advocates and so on and and everybody 's got their own stories about how mm. they 've had yeah. these flights to health with their particular dietary intervention and it might be actually that um, a diet is is just far more nuanced it's far more of a personalized thing than we give it credit for and there's this evolving field of nutrigenomics that kind of looks at people's individual responses to macro and micronutrients and so that's a really kind of interesting field but at the moment we're we're just kind of applying general data which is not going to fit everybody but um Yeah, the idea behind something like the Mediterranean diet or the MIND diet is that it provides a diversity of um, different macronutrients, um, which uh, have a favorable interaction with the the microbiome. And then that can sort of improve uh, brain health and and functioning in general. So uh, Greg, you were mentioning antioxidants before. So Mm. antioxidants are really thought to be very important um, in terms of mopping up free radicals reducing oxidative stress and addressing inflammation and so on and these antioxidants come in in many forms but you know colorful vegetables are kind of classically the sort of thing that you should be having as well as whole grains and so on as well so i think diets should certainly try to incorporate as many antioxidants as they can fiber is a is a big thing as well and we should really try to be The standard kind of UK or Australian or American and Western diet, I guess, um, does lack fiber significantly. And um, fiber, fiber we know, is good for cholesterol levels, but it also has that that favorable interaction with the microbiome. It acts as a um, a sort of uh, prebiotic-type molecule that then the gut bacteria break down and they uh, release things like short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, which can have a, a good effect on the brain and so on as well. So making sure you have fiber and that can come in in many forms is important, which is one of the issues I have with things like keto diets, to be honest, is that, you know, the high fat diets, no carbs, you you can get some fiber otherwise, but that's something that's kind of lacking, uh, I think. Um, Then there's things like the the omega-3 fatty acids, which are essential fatty acids, so things that we cannot get, our body can't make, so we are reliant on our diet. So the classic sources of these would be cold water fish and so on. And these are really important from the perspective of neuronal integrity. So the the myelin sheaths that coat the axons of the nerve cells that allow effective transmission, um, the integrity of them is is mediated to a degree by these omega-3 fatty acids, so EPA and DHA. Uh, so fish is the richest source of of that um you know there's some controversy about eating fish and you know whether you're getting exposed to toxic chemicals and all the rest of it so you just can't win but um <laughs> you know we try our best uh, there are some vegetarian sources of, of those uh so flax seeds walnuts all the rest of it but um the conversion of the, the compound, the ALA, alpha linolenic acid, to EPA and DHA is, is not great. Um, so that's why we generally say fish. Uh, so, yeah, so the, I guess these are – it, sometimes it's more helpful, I think, to, to think about the constituents of a diet rather than the specific diet. So variety, diversity, mm. um, the antioxidants, the fibre, um, the omega-3 fatty acids – B-, B vitamins again are something that we find in meat, but also green leafy vegetables, which are critical for brain health as well. And then there's the issue of um, trying to reduce things like um, fat, which is controversial, um, sugar, which is less controversial, I think, and uh, <laughs> processed foods and things. So there's it's a it's it's a vast topic, um, and as I say, people have anecdotes. And who knows what to make of individual responses to it, diet, but it, it's a critical thing.
1: It, it's a bit like uh, you're saying about you know, strength training, hit training, aerobic training. Yeah, you know, they all have their benefits, but chances are it's best to do it all. <laughs> and the same thing with with diet is probably just say follow these basic things, these the basic principles, and you'll you'll be okay.
2: Yeah, um, I, I think that's. That would be my approach, and that's the, the advice that I give to people, just to sort of not to deprive yourself of any particular macro or micronutrient um, and just to have this kind of diversity. Things like the, the keto diet, so if somebody has good-going metabolic syndrome or they've got diabetes and things, there may be some value, at least temporarily, being on mm. something that is very low-carb and to kind of essentially undo the damage and to break this kind of autoregulation cycle that seems to occur in that particular condition. Um, But I'm I'm just not sure if you're otherwise kind of healthy that you need to kind of go down that line. Um, There is this interesting link between sugar and inflammation and then the development of insulin resistance and this connection between insulin resistance in the brain and things like Alzheimer's disease as well, which is again one of the reasons that uh, keto or low carb proponents talk about the benefits of low carb diets uh, so there is research to kind of back some of that stuff up but um, if you're otherwise healthy i guess this is the question you know is is do you need to have such a restrictive diet
0: hmm. the, the thing that's that, that really struck me and i almost got quite angry about it actually was <laughs> It's a, well there's all this fantastic information i mean you've written your book there's, there's there's other papers i mean i was reading a guy from harvard earlier and why is the message just not getting out to, to i mean to, to people to sort of do quite basic things really or it seems to me quite basic things um because we we, we could we could help an awful lot of people if we could just you know Take on board this stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know why um, there seems to be such an objection to what just seems like fairly sensible advice. Uh, it's probably fair to say that there are some people that um, benefit economically from having a certain viewpoint about diet mm. and so on. Um, and so we kind of, you know, do need to be mindful of, of, of that kind of thing. I think people can be just sort of functioning at what's an adequate level. Um Having things like Mediterranean varied diets, but just want to to feel better than that, and so they then go through some process of a radical diet change like keto or something else, and then they do at least temporarily feel better they 've become you know massive advocates of it, so that 's kind of part of it as well um the difficulty of, part, of course with that is that you know anybody that goes on a diet is likely to engage in other favorable lifestyle changes which may be then the thing mm-hmm. that are actually kind of helping yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah hard to know how to kind of interpret these things but yeah look i think there's um i think we all know what a healthy diet kind of looks like it's, it's just a matter of, of trying to stick with it and um I'm implementing it yeah yeah. And and actually, that's the other thing that I kind of mentioned a bit in the the psych um, article is about how we sustain habits. Because um, I think this is actually one of the, the biggest challenges is that, that mm. we have is that we all know kind of what's good for us to a degree. We can all go through periods of being highly motivated. Probably most of your listeners are probably above average motivation if they're, you know, keeping fit and stuff in their middle age. Um, but the difficulty is sustaining that. And, um, we are designed, of course, for immediate reward rather than delayed gratification. You know, we, we mm. like, from a survival perspective, that makes sense. You know, we need rich energy sources. We need fat, sugar, and all the things that in the long term are not good for us. So that's how our brain is is wired. And so it's a challenge to kind of um, push back against that all the time, you know, particularly if other things are going on, if we're sleep deprived, if we're stressed, you know, our frontal lobe's not functioning as well, we can't rationalize what we're doing, we we go back to those kind of basic drives. So there's a, I think there's a utility in sort of trying to um, establish habits as, as kind of the the core underpinning to long-term behavioral changes. And and it, this is just something I guess I've been interested in recently, having seen lots of people that I say, you know, you should do X, Y, and Z and they do it for six months and that's it. Um, and we try and understand why it is that they're not doing it. And it's just too hard, you know? So, so if you can get to a point where people are just inculcating uh, good habits into their everyday life, you know, just tacking a good habit onto an existing habit, um, then that becomes an unconscious process. And then eventually you get to a point where um, that person's identity actually becomes more aligned with a kind of healthy lifestyle. And then anything that they do contrary to that, such as eating lots of sugar or processed foods or whatever, then becomes discordant with that sense of their own identity. And therefore, they're far less likely to do it. Mm So then the energy is expended the other way. So, um, you know, I think in terms of long-term changes, that's really what we should be doing, trying to just develop these habits, spend a bit of time just cementing them, now, we don't have to consciously think about all this stuff that we know is good for us. We're just doing it, you know, like you guys getting out exercising all the time. You just do it. You know, that's your your identity as part of part mm. of you. Uh, so that I think that's the key to sort of long-term behavioral change. That's that's my sense of things anyway. Make it easy.
1: Jason, go back to what you were saying about what you were getting angry about, but why isn't this information disseminated more? Um, and I think it also it's, it, it's part of what we said before about how, when you're in your twenties and thirties, you don't really think about the future. You're not really looking to your future self. You're 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 living more in the moment than. And now now we've become more reflective. I don't think it's. I certainly looking back on my twenties, I wasn't thinking about what I was going to be doing in my fifties at all, or or hmm. my my future healthy self in my fifties. And we've talked about how you know looking at the eight... imagine your yourself in the future what if you met that person what would you say to them what would the older person say to the younger person which would be if you, if you've looked after this body it'd be you're welcome um but if if you haven't then the younger person is saying to the older person what the hell did you do um so so i i think part of it is that there is for a lot of people they just don't think about that they don't think about what is going I think there's something to do with um I think with smokers that that there's a lot of it is it won't happen to me. The cancer won't happen to me, even though I smoke twenty thirty a day. There's this it's it's sort of burying your head and hoping it will it'll be will bypass you. Um and I think that's part of human nature. Just avoid the 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 bad stuff and um fingers crossed. But um yeah.
2: I'd agree with that. I guess the other comment I'd make is that uh, when you are in your 20s and 30s, maybe one of the reasons health is not top of, of mind is because you actually generally feel pretty good. You know, you mm. are physiologically mm. so much more robust. Mm. You don't get mm. so many symptoms. You can cope with more stuff. So then if everything's going well, why would you think too much about it? And then, of course, yeah. the things that happen in middle age where we start becoming aware of these physiological disturbances, that's what kind of makes us think, mm, we're actually a bit more vulnerable than we we thought we were, and, yeah. and that's what yeah. we think about it. Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe this podcast can help get messages out there. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I think, I think it was angry in terms of just society, really. I think, you know, maybe there, there are, there are explainable reasons why individuals do it, but, but there are inexplicable reasons why as a society, we we still allow certain things. And I, I so, you know, the, the conversation we had with the immunologist guy, um, uh, Greg, where you know we're talking about how important the first five years of life, mm. yeah, is where you your immune be, system
1: set up, yeah,
0: and yet we don't operate as a society where that actually becomes, you know, you know, a critical thing. And you know, sleep, for example, as we touched on it earlier. It's like there's still people going around saying, "Oh, it's great, I can get by with three hours sleep," and it's it's like
2: it's it's yeah. really
0: important, guys.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a is a bizarre thing, isn't it? And um, I remember when I was because um, I'm I'm English, you know. But uh, when I mm. was living in England in the the nineties or so, when there was that whole kind of period where it was you know Thatcher versus Kinnock, mm. and um, Thatcher carried on winning yeah. uh, the elections, and there was some comment that it was because she only had to sleep three hours, whereas Kinnock had to sleep sleep four hours. You know, so this is kind of like <laughs> cultural sort of idea. That uh, you know, sleep less. There's got there's power in that. You know, mm, you've got to be yeah, more productive yeah. and things. So it's it's just the wrong way of looking at things. No,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah absolutely.
0: absolutely. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating yes, to, to, to have right you on so. the chat. Um, I've learned a load. Um, really appreciate yeah your your time, Carlos. Um, we always try and finish off with all of our guests. If, if you've listened to an episode, asking sort of two two questions. So, Greg, you, you do the honours this time.
1: Okay, Carlos. Okay, so we've got two questions. The, fir- the first one is um, a uh, desert island discs of of exercise, but you're only allowed two. You're only to take, do two types of exercise. It could be a sport or it could be a type of exercise. You could only do two for the rest of your life. What would you do?
2: Well, definitely running. That's for sure my favourite form of exercise and um so I would do that purely from an enjoyment perspective mm-hmm. I like long distance running and so on. And then I don't know how specific I have to be, but I would certainly put no. some kind of uh, weight work in there as well. Okay. Um, yeah, for the, for the brain more than anything else, rather than for vanity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Excellent. Um, and the, uh, this is the groundhog day of, of, of your, of your exercise and sporting history. So if there's one moment in your past where you, Had a moment, a a a day, an event, uh, just a moment in 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 a run or something which you would want to relive again and again. What would it be?
2: Mm, That's a good question. I mean, I I think a few years ago I was in the process of uh, running marathons, and um, I think I I've just I've done three marathons all in. Queensland and the first one didn't go so well and you know I finished it but I had to walk and then the second one I actually ran the whole way and did a decent time and I think that kind of just being able to sustain the running and not walk Mm and all the Mm -hmm. rest of it, and then crossing the finish line. And actually, the finish line was right on the beach in Queensland, beautiful setting, and just throwing my – well, not really throwing – limping my way into the water afterwards and just, you know, realising that I'd done it. That was a real – you know, that was a great moment. That's probably the the highlight, I would think.
0: Fantastic. Wow, that's a a nice one to finish off on. Um, Now, it's been a pleasure having you on. We really appreciate the time um, that that you've given um, today. And uh, um, so thank you very much. Thank you very much.
2: That's a pleasure. It's been nice to catch up with you guys and thanks for having me on.
1: Great. It was a real pleasure. And, it's, and it's, 10, it's got 10 past 10. I'm going to bed now. Yeah, bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you need to sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. Cheers, okay. Callis. No problems. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye bye. <laughs>